Off the Ball Daily. A home for your favourite podcasts from Off the Ball. The performance rankings, you had to be there, the crappy quiz, and a slight tangent. Does that count? <laughs> Subscribe to the Off the Ball Daily podcast feed right now. All right, we're into the final couple of days of the French Open. Delighted to be joined on the line by Caitlin Thompson from Racket Magazine. How are you keeping, Caitlin? I'm loving the French Open. I'm so pumped that it's on my TV every day. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing all right. I am, like uh, most people, I think, pretty pumped about tomorrow, though. Uh, Carlos Alcaraz, Novak Djokovic, first time at a Grand Slam. How pumped are you for this? I think this is the match we've been waiting for. This is the one that I think most of us in the tennis world have been anticipating. And I think I can't overstate how, even though obviously this is only a semifinal, there'll be a final afterwards. For a lot of people, this is the final. They're treating this as the the real moment between the generation that is coming up, really the one behind Carlos Alcaraz, who is still extremely young and really the last of the big three. Uh, Novak Djokovic is, uh, you know, tied with Rafa Nadal currently for the most grand slams ever won by a man. And I think for me, watching the two of them play is, I think, the culmination of certainly the moment, if not, you know, months and and maybe even years of speculation about what this moment is going to look like. Carlos Alcaraz has only recently turned 20, so it's far too early to start talking about his legacy or anything like that, considering uh, if he follows Novak Djokovic's lead, he'll still be around in 16 years time. But in terms of when we're talking about Alcaraz and the big three, this is a rare opportunity actually for him to go and beat one of these. And that actually we might in 10, 20 years, we're not going to see this too often. So for him to be able to go and beat Djokovic now, while Djokovic is still a very relevant figure, is something that could be quite long lasting. Completely right. And I think for me, the fact that Novak Djokovic really is the last credible threat that the big three have. He's the one who is in the best shape. He doesn't seem like he's going to flag at all. And, you know, I think for me, there's only really been a couple of matches where Alcaraz has played uh, any of the big three at all. You know, he he took out Rafa already, um, you know, on clay at, uh, in Spain, you know, a year ago, we haven't really seen him on these highest stages play anybody who's kind of worthy of what kind of tennis he has showed. Last year, obviously, he got to the finals of the U.S. Open and had a pretty easy time of it with Casper Ruud. He hasn't necessarily been, you know, I think tested by what makes these big three so great, which is just especially in the case of Novak Djokovic, they don't go away. They don't roll over. They don't uh, you know, watching Steph Tsitsipas play against Novak Djokovic here in Paris a couple of years ago in the final uh, of Roland Garros, even the most optimistic Stefanos Tsitsipas fans who were watching him go up two sets to love on Novak with possibly even a break, none of us thought that it was Stefanos Tsitsipas' match to win. Because Novak Djokovic, even when he's two sets down, still has you exactly where he wants you. He's the most famous escape artist, I think, that we have playing in tennis today. And so it is with complete honesty and a lot of anticipation that I can honestly tell you I have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. I truly don't. I have I can speculate about you know what I like about their games, but I, I truly don't know what to expect, which I think for me going into a tennis match as a seasoned tennis watcher and player myself is a really fun and exciting, relatively new feeling. 
that ability that Djokovic, that Nadal, that Federer have had over decades to really go down deep into the dark pits of hell and still come out <laughs> alive year on year, Grand Slam on Grand Slam. That's the next step for Alcaraz, is it? The, to prove that actually when the ultimate test comes, he can survive it. And that's something that almost no one in his cohort, well, I can't even say that they're in his cohort, because as you mentioned, Alcaraz is just 20. The generations that have followed the big three and their dominance, I'm thinking of the Songas and the Dimitrovs and, you know, even to a degree, Murray, who who snuck away with a couple of slams in that big era, enough to call it, you know, for a time, the big four. Nobody who really has been in that middle ground team got away with one uh, when he beat Zverev in the US Open finals. But pretty much nobody between the ages of 20 and 35 has credibly challenged the big three on on a Grand Slam stage in a best of five match because of what you just said, especially Nadal on clay and especially Djokovic on any surface. He loves being down. He loves going to the pits of hell. In fact, you get the sense that he might sometimes want to speed his arrival to the pits of hell and then drag his opponent down into it with him to turn it into a war of attrition. Novak Djokovic loves adversity. In fact, that's, you know, I think what he eats for breakfast. And so for me, the real generational rise that Alcaraz represents, which is really, really young. He, he's not really part of this generation that, you know, team or Dimitrov or any of these other players that sort of were, were also Rams belongs to even Tiafo or Tommy Paul, you know, some of the ones who are mid twenties, this kid is brand new in a lot of ways. And we haven't seen him in this stage certainly never before at, at uh, Roland Garros, but we haven't really seen him at, at slams because he's just so new, new to the professional tour um, just, you know, two or three year, three seasons in. So I think for me, I'm, I'm excited because yes, it's a changing the guard moment, but also I don't know how he's going to react to Novak Djokovic's uh, embrace of the adversity. These are the sort of matches that present the opportunity as well for Alcaraz to really announce himself to a, a worldwide audience way past the tennis audience from what he can do over the next five ten years then when you look at who's around him like if you look at Djokovic he wins his first Grand Slam in 2008 against Tonga but over the next ten years it's always Murray Nadal or Federer that he has to go and beat in the final so each one is so damn tough to go and win is there actually an opportunity the way the tennis world has worked out for Alcaraz. I don't want to say to win cheap Grand Slams over the next five, ten years, but is there anybody at his level right now within that age bracket? No, not yet. Not not close. Uh, you know, I think the other day when we watched Carlos Alcaraz just completely dismantle Steph Titsipas, and this is a man who has won a handful of Masters 1000s. He's one of the best players on the earth and he has credibly gotten to two slam finals before. He just took him to the wood chipper. It wasn't close. And so one of the things that might be getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, because the one thing that I don't love about Carlos Alcaraz, despite loving pretty much every single aspect of his game, which really inherits the best of all three of the big three, is that his body might not be able to keep up with him. He's not particularly healthy in terms of how his body has reacted to be on tour. Again, he's still young, um, but the tour is a grind. And a lot of what the big three were sort of 
best known as uh, was for their resilience and their recovery. So we'll see if Alcaraz can do that. But in terms of the the competition he's going to face, one of the reasons this match with Djokovic is so important is because this might be the last person capable of stopping a Carlos Alcaraz era of complete hegemony. He has so many more tools, so much more athleticism, so much more sort of natural tennis brain court awareness. And as I said, he he combines the flair and shot making of a Federer with the grit and absolute fight and iron will of Nadal with the flexibility and defense and speed of a Djokovic. So he really is his own creature. He's not in any one of their molds. He's, he's kind of the best of all of them. And so I think this might be the last best defense until Carlos Alcaraz period provided his body stays healthy of complete and utter domination. Uh, what about Djokovic's body coming into this then? He described himself as quite sluggish, quite slow in his quarterfinal win on Tuesday. In terms of his current form, his ability to, at 36, to reel back the years, you're shaking your head. There's no doubts about him being at his None absolute whatsoever. peak. None whatsoever. I mean, listen, I'm going to make a, uh, a football reference here because as a North American watching European football and infrequently but when i do there's always some guy who goes down with seemingly a life-ending injury and the game stops and everybody shakes their head in misery and then you know he pops back up and scores a penalty goal so i'm not saying that the same energy is at foot when you watch novak djokovic but we have probably seen him short of having you know on-court open heart surgery encounter just about every kind of injury foible micro muscle tear pedicure necessitating toenail emergency you know like look this guy has gotten through every kind of injury that you could possibly throw at him uh and he seems to only rise stronger and higher from whatever on-court malady or pre-match sluggishness that you know he might talk about so the truth is i don't believe him but I don't not believe him because I think he's lying. I think I don't believe him because he has proven that if there's one thing that's not going to happen, it's that a injury or a malady of any sort is going to slow Novak Djokovic down. You have to beat him. You have to beat him convincingly. And the amount of people who've been able to do that in the past couple of years, unless he beats himself by getting defaulted, uh, is vanishingly thin. You mentioned their meeting last year in Spain at the Madrid Masters, which Alcaraz won. In terms of what we will see tomorrow and styles making fights and the drama how is how do you expect this match to go i truly have no idea you could tell me that alcaraz is going to win in straights i could see it you could tell me that djokovic is going to win in straights because alcaraz maybe fails to meet the moment or or tries to force a too aggressive a style of play and and hits too many drop shots i could see it i could also see a five set battle that really is going to come down to, you know, a few crucial points that uh, really represent sort of the crux of pressure and opportunism. I truly have no idea what's going to happen. And the truth is, and this is sort of me getting on my soapbox a little bit, but best of five matches are not necessarily indicative of the best the sport has to offer. The reason I'm saying that is often unless everybody is prepared to play their best tennis for every point, you usually have lulls. Some player takes a little bit of mental vacation and maybe the other one takes too long to get into the match. Usually there's a throwaway set or two. And so I 
see this being a battle royale. I see this being full of excellent tennis. I hope it's full of excellent tennis from the first point to the last. Um, and really, I would love to see them play in best of three because I think that would elicit the highest pressure, most sort of high performing and risk taking that, you know, again, makes for the most entertaining kind of matches. I, but what I don't want to see is, you know, 20, 30 ball rallies of people trading backhands cross court. Luckily, with Carlos Alcaraz, that's not typically his style of play. He doesn't like to play defensive. And so all I'm hoping for is is really offense meets defense in the most compelling matchup. For them. But I have no idea what's going to happen. I, I truly am, am sort of baffled. The way you were talking there, I thought you were talking about a live golf version of tennis. Well, I think for me, the first of all, we can keep Saudi Arabia out of our mouths in terms of tennis. So far, they've already claimed our next gen tournament. And uh, well, can we? Because that's what I wanted to ask you. Andy Murray was talking uh, over the last couple of days, saying he would never play tennis in Saudi Arabia, and concerned that after essentially taking over golf at uh, the world of professional golf, that Saudi may now turn their attentions towards tennis. They already have. And if there wasn't some master plan in the works, I would be shocked. Um, they were among the credible suitors for investing in the WTA, uh, even though ultimately that hasn't happened yet. And they've been luring players with exhibitions to Saudi Arabia uh, and have secured, along with the ATP, the men's tour, uh, a next generation tournament. I think that's set to begin in the next couple of years. You know, setting aside my as a journalist, um, profound disappointment and uh, concern about what that indicates for, you know, human rights as a woman, you know, as a gay person, just the idea of getting in bed with that country and what it stands for is, you know, no, no short of an emergency in my mind. However, from a pragmatic money standpoint, tennis is fractured. It's balkanized. The people who run various slams, governing bodies, and national, you know, sort of federations are never on the same page. They're all basically petty tyrants who want their own tiny pie to not share, even if it means being part of a larger pie that, that then they all benefit from. You know, it's really a sort of backwards sport in a lot of ways, not in terms of the players who are incredible, the product, which is the best it's ever been. Uh, in my opinion, the parity between the men's game and the women's game is incredible. Both are are fascinating to watch, but really because it has so many institutional problems that somebody coming in and buying up the lot of it and forcing cooperation on the face of it wouldn't be bad. It's just it would be bad if it's Saudi Arabia for all of the reasons that I mentioned. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. We're, we're potentially looking at uh, some real needed consolidation but on whose behalf and with whom but to your larger point about a live golf the reason you brought it up is because i was complaining about five sets the reason i'm complaining about five sets is it ends up benefiting a more boring style of play the players who have to play it um the men usually uses it as a reason to to deny equal prize money with the women and it's tends to over the course of 11 months even though there's only four tournaments that deploy it including i think at times uh davis cup it tears their bodies up and so nobody can really play their best tennis when that is the expectation not to mention the fact that a lot of the sets are throwaway sets we don't need to see the third set after djokovic has rolled over you know karen kachanov two and two do we we know what's going to happen it's going to keep happening so really when people say they like five sets literally what they mean is they like the last set and no matter what happens tomorrow, I hope we get an incredibly exciting last set. I, I was going to ask you an impossible question that if then 
the Grand Slams were like re- regular ATP Tour events and they were all just three sets. How different would the major rankings, Grand Slam rankings look through the years? It wouldn't matter. I and mean, the thing is, the tennis tour is so compelling week in, week out. For me, a ticket courtside in Rome, watching the best players on both tours in a beautiful place is just as exciting as it is watching them in the beautiful, you know, grounds of the All England Club or in Roland Garros, where I had the privilege of being last week. To me, it's not the sets that make the difference. It's the the joint nature of the tours. It's the size of the draws. It's the fact that they have juniors, wheelchairs, legends. They make a huge spectacle of it. And to me, the the five-set play, if anything, just slows it down, makes it less palatable for tennis uh, watchers, and you know tears these guys' bodies up. And again, I can't emphasize enough. When you watch tennis as closely as I do, you watch these players knowing they're going to have five sets to goof around. They're not bringing their best tennis for all five of those sets. Oftentimes, people remember the last set. And, you know, sure, the last set tends to be competitive. It is whether you play best of three or best of five. At the other semifinal is last year's beaten finalist, Casper Rudd against Alex Zeverev. Casper uh, Rudd has had a bit of a struggle so far this year, but finding a bit of form once again at Roland Garros. He's such a fun player to watch because not only did he make last year's Roland Garros final, he almost he also made the, as we discussed, US Open final against Carlos Alcaraz and made it competitive for a minute. He got a set out of those four. Uh, one thing that is interesting about this matchup is Rude is coming into this, as you said, not having had a good season, but the speed of the court, I think the familiarity of it and the fact that he's kind of played his way into form is really, really encouraging. He very, very comfortably beat uh, Holger Rune the other day in a way that I think was a statement. Uh, Zverev is not traditionally good on clay. He's uh, a little bit more of a, I think, baseline heavy player. So I actually favor Casper Rude to get back to the finals. That said, Rude just doesn't have the weaponry to, I think, stand up to either Novak Djokovic or Carlos Alcaraz. I would love to be wrong because he's fun to watch and I like him a lot personally. Um, but I think it's pretty lopsided in terms of which of these semifinals is going to be more entertaining right. and who has the advantage going into the finals. Is there a bit of a mental challenge for Zarev around what happened in last year's semifinal against Nadal and the injury he suffered? No, if anything, I think Zverev has too much confidence coming out of last year's uh, match against Nadal. He got a horrific ankle injury. And, you know, we should say that couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Alex Zverev has had plenty of problems off court. He's known as being one of the more hot-headed players. He attacked an umpire. He's nobody's uh, rooting interest, maybe outside of Germany and his extended family. Um, that said, he was going to get beaten by Nadal no matter what happened. And I think the injury actually gave him an excuse to uh, to pretend like he was actually in it. So for me, the idea that he he also famously, famously chokes in big moments. You can watch the 60-mile-an-hour serves that he was hitting against Dominic Team in their U.S. Open match uh, final a couple of years ago. So he's kind of a choke artist, so I really don't see him, unless he brings something completely new to the table against Casper Ruud, uh, getting through that match. It, in the off chance he does, he's cannon fodder for whoever Djokovic or Alcaraz ends up facing in the final. Uh, we're recording this at about half four on Thursday afternoon. Uh, there is live tennis ongoing in Paris at the moment. Arena Sabalenka has just won the second set of her semi-final against Karolina Mucheva, uh, both of them in a tie break. Uh, so they're into the final set there. Uh, 
what's life like on tour for Sabalenka at the moment particularly when you look at the way maybe she's been treated at times in Paris uh, Belarusian tennis players has spoken out publicly it feels for the very first time against the Belarusian president Alexander Lukashenko which maybe changes public opinion but what has life been like for her over the past six months and has it affected her play it I think has been pretty brutal I think it's been pretty brutal for her uh, to have to field questions about Lukashenko in press conference after press conference especially because in her case especially she has made about as anti-war a statement especially in this past tournament that she could possibly make i think for me the ukrainian protest uh against the russian players of the shaking of hands totally get it their country is being reduced to rubble in a horrific illegal and deservedly condemned act of unmitigated aggression that said these players from russia and belarus their families live there their livelihoods live there And when you're living in an autocratic state, the amount of freedom that you enjoy to speak your mind and potentially against the regime cannot be interpreted anywhere close as safe. And so for me, hearing Irina Sabalenka sort of put on the spot at her own personal peril to say she is against the war, which means she is against Lukashenko, probably has repercussions for her family and possibly her personal safety that we can't possibly fathom unless we've lived in an autocratic state. Um, and so for me, I totally understand why these Ukrainians have made this uh, protest happen. I understand why it's, um, you know, obviously personally incredibly difficult for them to compete against players from, from in the case of Russia who are actively killing their family members and country men and women. In the case of Belarus, it's a proxy government that's supporting it and probably in some cases helping militarily. But I think... Um, Uh, As much as sports is about politics and as much as I truly, truly believe that um, athletes can and should use their platforms to speak out, uh, there's also an incredibly difficult issue of personal safety that I feel like um, Arena Sabalenka in particular has probably grappled with uh, in a way that is a little unfair to her and, and frankly probably puts her in active danger. It's like asking a Chinese player to speak out about where Peng Shui is after she was disappeared by the Chinese government. There's no guarantee that they're going to be able to return safely. And if you look at some of the other Chinese players who haven't, um, that fear and that danger is palpable and real. And so for me, luckily for Arena Sabalenka, and to her amazing credit, she's been able to play her best tennis this year. She's played uh, a lights out season winning the Australian open. She's just now come back against Mukova, who's playing the best Mukova has ever played. Um, a great player out of the Czech Republic who has a complete all court game, but hasn't quite ever broken through. So this is a great match and I'm delighted it's going three. I like Arena Sabalenka's odds to beat Iga Sviantek. If that ends up being the final, um, Iga Sviantek shouldn't have too much trouble with Beatrice Hadadmaya out of Brazil, who is frankly lucky to be there after Hans Jabert choked. But going back to the political situation, um, I would love very much for these Ukrainian and Russian players to figure out a way to, I think, peacefully coexist in the in the locker room. Because every single Russian that I know of, and certainly in the case of, of um, Arena Sabalenka, maybe with the exception of Potapova, who was seen wearing a pro-Putin Moscow team shirt, uh, they've all spoken out against the war. None of these players even live 
in a place that I think they're able to be safe in speaking out. And so for me, it's, it's an illustration in a great way about how tennis is a truly global sport, how this is really, really, I think, a relevant place for people's um, personal experiences along with their sporting experiences in Intersect. Um, and I would sort of just add that I would love to see the players treated with, and that means all of the players treated with the most um, amount of empathy possible. Well, Sabalenka has taken a big step this week because previously she had said that no athlete supports the war, but her quote this week was, I don't support the war, I don't support Lukashenko right now, which is to say for an athlete from Belarus to say publicly uh, brings God knows what danger to them and yes. maybe not even to them, as you mentioned, to their family back home. Yeah, it's a... it's a uh, Nobody outside of probably Putin's inner circle supports this. It's... It's horrific and the tennis world, because it has so many players of all of these represented nations playing in it, um, you know, is forced to grapple with it. I think the strong support of Ukraine by the tours is great. I think the strong support of Ukraine by some of the main players, Igor Sviantek in particular, is great. Um, I also think the decision last year of the All England Lawn and Tennis Club to ban Russian and Russian players was misguided. I think it was a unilateral decision that was largely performative. And I think if, again, because most of these players do not support the war and they are, if anything, sort of just penalized by association, which then meant the tournament lost its points from the tours and it turned into a sort of a fiasco. I think if tennis were serious about taking a political stance, and I think that they are performing that they're serious in all the statements, but we'll see if they actually mean it. They have a wide open opportunity to get Russian money and to a degree, Belarusian money, but really Russian money out of the sport, kick the oligarchs and their kids out of the fancy clubs, get them off of the boards, divest. And, you know, just like we look at London as being a safe haven for all of these oligarchs to park their money and their kids and go to Eton, you know, maybe that's where the rubber needs to meet the road, not a, player who's hasn't really even gone to high school in a lot of these cases asking asking them to to condemn something that puts them in personal danger and is that russian influence still as strong 15 16 months into the war you'd have to i think be on the ground particularly in london to answer that question fully but from what i've heard from friends who are on the board at the all england club who are members there and i'm picking on them in particular because they're the ones who did this um, it's quite a thing to ban Russian and Belarusian players while still taking Russian and in some cases Belarusian money from members, sponsors, uh, and business associates. And again, I think that's the height of hypocrisy. And that is really making the players pay for something that the leadership is too afraid to confront. Um, and so from what I've heard, the answer is yes. I haven't personally reported on it. The last time I was in London was for last year's Wimbledon. Um, but yeah, I, I think you know, just like anything else, there's a there's an easy way to perform this and then there's a way to institutionally tackle it. And the latter is always harder, but because that's the real where the real fight is, right? Caitlin, great stuff as always. Thanks for having me. Caitlin Thompson there from Racket Magazine.